Monday, um, that day, that classic day we know and love. Um, we had a good weekend. We did. That was fun. We got to see each other this weekend. Yeah, we went to a conference. It wasn't really a conference. It was one of those summer publishing institute things where, like, a college. This, In this case, it was um, St. University Thomas. of St. Thomas here in the Twin Cities. Um, anytime something is in St. Paul, I call it in the Twin Cities. And anytime it's in Minneapolis, I say it's in Minneapolis. You know, St. Paul <laughs> is the capital of our fair state. Um, but we, we were at this thing and you and I kind of did a very basic Q&A about what agenting life is like. How do you break into publishing as someone who wants to work in it? Um, any of that kind of stuff. It was fun. I thought it went well, right? It did. We They used that same author photo of me. Um, the one where the, I took the, a, uh, took of you in a Thai restaurant. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is not their fault because that is. Um, it's a fantastic picture. It's basically the only photo of me circulating anywhere. Um, but I should perhaps get a better photo. Uh, well, to mine's put on about five things. years old. So. Well, good. Um, but we had there was a heartwarming moment, Laura, that I wanted to bring to the okay. listeners. I haven't <laughs> actually heard this, folks. <laughs> uh, this is a heartwarming heartwarming well, so, moment that I was busy during. Well, so we. Um, we did our Q&A, right? We yeah. sat up there. They asked us questions. We answered them. And our audience um, was a lot of college students, yeah. but then also a, a few adults from here and there. Yeah. Um, and so afterward, you know, as usual, we kind of stood up there and a few people came up and asked us a few more lingering questions, that kind of thing. And at one point, you were like off talking to someone, but two um, women who told me they were seniors in college came up to me and they had just finished their senior project and you could kind of tell that they had that they had kind of like geared up a little bit you for always this. know when somebody you, wants you to know pitch what I mean you. like you're an agent you know what that's like like it's when people are like have like prepped a little bit to like pitch you their book or talk about their manuscript or whatever it is and these two had they were in that mode I could tell and the thing that I like loved about it is, they started pitching, you know, they each kind of started pitching their work to me, um, as writers often do. And, but they would only talk about each other's work. Oh. Like, you know, one of them would start talking and her whole thing was about how great her friend's book was, you know. And then the other one would, you know, kind of cut in and say, no, 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 no. hers is is really good. Hers is even and, better. <laughs> and it was just such a, like, it was just so clear that the two of them had, like, come up and like the plan in each of their like heads was like all right i'm gonna make sure that my friend comes off as good as possible right oh. at like the expense of like pitching their own work um but it was very good it felt to me like a very like heartwarming moment of like writer friend solidarity to That's just like show incredibly up and like wholesome it was just strange because like you had two people they were both like functioning as like the hype man for the other <laughs> <laughs> and it was good it was, it was it was funny it was it was nice um i and you loved, you just love to see it, you know. You love to see people um, who kind of show up and want to put, you know, their friend first and stuff. So I, I really thought that that was pleasant. I thought Did it was. Did you request a, the books? Yeah, no, I, you know, I gave them. They're students. Anytime we get um, you people like that who want to talk, I make sure to try to be available for questions. So yeah, no, I gave them my email and told them to send stuff. So um, you know, we'll see. But it was. Uh, it was good. It was a good day on the college campus. It made me feel. <laughs> it was one. Of, it was also one of those things where, like, I remember being in that position. Like, 
you know, I, I was a writing student, right? And I wrote a senior project and all that kind of stuff. And I remember feeling like that was my life's work, mm-hmm. you know, like that was it. That was the end of all the writing I would ever, like this was kind of the pinnacle. And now the rest of my life would be trying to get it, this specific manuscript published. And that is not how things have Aren't gone. Are you still trying to get this specific manuscript no, published? No, no, this, I mean, I'm trying to get this, it's a, but not, it's not my college work. It's oh, just no. something, okay. um, this was something else. Um, so it's, but yeah, no, it was, just, I just, that, that distinct feeling of like, just being done with school and like, all right, now the next step, the only thing I can think of is to get all this writing I did in school out into the world. It's it's a feeling I think you, that passes over time. You kind of realize that what you want is to write something new rather mm. than to kind of – in the same way that like all other college feelings kind of pass, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but I don't know. Anyway, it was it was very nice to be reminded that writers are, at, I think, at their heart supportive and good people, you know, for each other. And yeah. So, that was good. Yeah. But all that is to say, welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane, and I'm here with my writer friend, Laura Zatz. And say hype, hello. hype man. <laughs> hello, Laura. I didn't even finish fucking saying it. I know, but I wanted to say that I was the hype man. Um, I, was, I was hyping your intro. Is that how that works? Yeah, that was, that's how it works. That's, that's great. Um, you often tell me that I'm not hyping enough, that not, I'm not no. enough of a woo girl for you. <laughs> That's true. Sometimes, like, good news will happen. And I pride myself on being a very good woo girl for you. You are an excellent woo girl. Like, when Laura comes into our little Slack channel and has good news, I'm pretty, like, you know, I'm bringing out the all caps and the exclamation points and the, you know, the multiple lines of, you know, all the things you would want. You're much better at memes also. A really good woo girl fundamentals, you know, like, that's me. Um, Laura is less so. Um, you know, I come in with my good news, and suddenly I have to like type out my own stuff as though it's from her voice. That <laughs> honestly, <laughs> which, though, at this point, yeah. I so I so very much enjoy you masquerading as me yeah. as your woo girl. <laughs> that I kind of just want to see what you come up yeah. with. <laughs> so that, that's usually where we end up with with um, book celebrations at this point. But if anybody wants to send me some like rote woo girl messages that I can like have in my back pocket for whenever Eric needs this, I would really appreciate it. Um, and so on all that good feeling, folks, today we're going to be talking about getting canceled. <laughs> so, um, but before we before we get to those lovely news stories of the day, um, how about the basic rundown? Huh? Of course. Woo! First of all. Wow. Um, second of all, it is June, which means we have three special episodes coming for you yet. We have our query show, which will be to you probably in the next don't week. Do it, followed don't, by, don't nope, do it. Don't do it. No, I'm I'm committing. We told everybody we would get our shit together yeah, no, for the we summer, should. and uh, we're going right. to do it. You're so right. coming right. to you in the next seven days or so, mm-hmm. um, followed by our first pages episode. Both of these are critique episodes, real pages, real pitches, real authors, real books, mm-hmm. real us. And we will go through everything line by line and critique as needed. And so those are available on Patreon. But also we have our third special episode Mm -hmm. coming this month. We don't yet have an idea of what we want because in a lot of ways we leave that open to you. Um, We want to use this third episode as a way to cover anything that we haven't necessarily covered already that would be helpful to you, the writer, um, and 
Patreon subscriber. Um, so if you have any questions or you'd like us to critique your query or first pages, send them to us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. I would just say as like a calendar specific plug of that kind of content too, is that summer is often when agents close for submissions and for queries, right? And so it's like a really good We're time. We're both closed right yeah, now. Yeah, no, I'm closed. If, if So if you're... Um, if you're someone who is trying to, you know, get ready to query or trying to get ready to, you know, get your stuff out into the world, like fall is kind of the moment of reopening in a lot of ways, whether it's agents or presses or whoever it is you're trying to be in touch with. And so it's a really good time to sharpen your pitch or work on that first page, you know, one more time. And so, and um, and we are close to queries. So we also have a little bit more time in our schedule to help you out with that. Like if you say, Hey, I really want a second query show this month yeah. or something just let us know yeah now more than ever join us um but anyway we have our first news story of the day this one actually is not about getting canceled we'll get to that in a minute but um it's Laura, kind of about being uncanceled <laughs> it's about coming back from <laughs> the dead i mean actually it is funny because barnes and noble um it has sort of been canceled and uncanceled throughout its history right like yeah. there was a while where Barnes and Noble was like the big the evil, bad guy. yeah, the big evil colossus for a while. When there was even a Meg Ryan, Tom Hanks movie yeah, about, about how Barnes bad and Noble. Barnes and Noble, yeah, exactly. Um, and so you know, we used to hate Barnes and Noble, but then it turns out we actually love it because it's not Amazon, and we need stores like that. Um, and so, if you're someone who loves it, like I think we do at this point, um, you're delighted, maybe I guess, to hear that they have been bought by the people who own. Uh, Waterstones, the chain, they're in the UK, right? They are yeah. in the UK. They, uh, so the venture capital firm that owns them now owns Barnes & Noble. Um, hopefully that, you know, it's kind of being painted right now as having saved Barnes & Noble from the brink of disaster. If you remember, they had a bunch of like management issues, you know, there was a lot of legal stuff going on at the top One of, of the company. One of their CEOs yeah. was just gone, uh, was, was just fired a a year or two ago for sexual harassment. Yeah. Before that, a bunch of people kept getting fired. Yeah. The Nook tanked. The Nook? <laughs> the Nook tanked so hard. I will never stop laughing about the Nook. About just the so Nook. You know. um, man, that was always going to be a disaster. Yeah, but well, you can't have a brick-and-mortar store that has proprietary software in the same way that Amazon does. I love to go to the physical store to buy electronic copies yeah. of my... <laughs> Um, but anyway, um, so just for the basic information here, um, the venture firm is called Elliott Advisors. The number is $638 million. Um, in cash. And, and so here we are. So, Laura. Yeah. What do you think? Like, are you, I mean, apart from hooray, Barnes & Noble is not um, going under for now. Yeah. Um, are we feeling good about this? Well, so I have a I have a deep abiding love for Barnes and Noble because yeah. I worked there oh, I like when Barnes I was in Noble. high school. Yeah, me too. Um, and you know I always appreciated the dark green and dark wood aesthetic more than I liked the the red and the blonde wood of Borders, which is of <laughs> course now gone. Um, yeah. I I am tentatively excited. Um, uh-huh. Waterston's when it was taken over. Um, and they put the CEO of Waterstones, who will now be also the CEO of Barnes & Noble, in charge. Waterstones went from six years of posted losses to having double-digit growth, which is a super exciting thing to hear about a bookstore chain. Sure. Um, I am 
also interested that the new plan for the Barnes and Noble is to kind of decentralize them. One thing that I know when I was working there is how little freedom the actual workers had over how to stock yeah. their their store for it's their for their right? yeah, for their audience. So it was always like you know, and as somebody who works in publishing now, it's always like, well, we went, we talked to Barnes & Noble in New York mm-hmm. and they wanted this and they're going to put it in this many stores. It's less um, as a, as an author and as, as a, as, you know, anybody in publishing, it's, you can't just go to an individual store and say, hey, don't you want to do a display of this subject with my book and all of these books. You know what I mean? Like there's, mm-hmm. it's, it's very from the top down. Yeah. Um, and I think that the plan, I, maybe this will change, but the plan thus far is to kind of make them like loosely connected and like cohesively branded, like indie bookstores. Right. Which like, that's good. That is good. I think it's that, good. I think that on a fundamental level, that approach is, what, I mean, it is what you want. It's sort of, but it, it almost feels like they're like cosplaying as an indie bookstore in that approach, which again is a good thing. That like I'm not saying that as though they shouldn't do that because indie bookstores are great and like having a you know regional specificity and you know like I'm looking at the New York Times article here and it you know talks about you know the store that's in Birmingham, Alabama is probably going to be different than the store that's in Boston. You know what I mean? And that's true. Like you do want places with different interests, with different you know focuses and all that kind of stuff, and that's. That's really good. I mean, I think that um, I'm, I feel conflicted about it on kind of just like a grand, probably annoying way. Yeah. Um, in that, on the one hand, it does seem like these people know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, that James Daunt, who is going to be the CEO, <clears throat> does in fact know what he's doing. He's yeah, been no, a bookseller for like a million years. Yeah. No, I mean, it seems as though um, this is a you know there's reasonable it's reasonable to believe that Barnes and Noble might turn it around a little bit which is of course good for publishing I do structurally wonder though about like this feels to me like another example of like consolidation as a means of competing with Amazon <laughs> you know what I mean like if you like when you think about things like the Penguin Random House merger or anything you know in that vein and now you've got you know Barnes and Noble and Waterstones you know and they're under the same it's like We've got the there's just like this consolidating that like venture capital is doing in response to this giant corporation. It's like it's all very there's going to be less and less players and the players are going to get bigger and bigger, Mm -hmm. you know, and I mean, we'll have to kind of see and we should really dig into how that might um, how that might affect things down the line in terms of conditions for people who work there. And, you know, even, you know, as we've kind of talked about on the show before, like book selling ends up having kind of a trickle effect for who gets to write what and all that kind of stuff. Right. And um, I am never instinctually a fan of venture capital swooping in and saving the day. Like I think that <laughs> typically that is not what you're getting. Um, if you look at even just like in this Times article here, like there's you know two very short paragraphs here about um, the the firm that owns it now. And you have this line here. Elliot spent more than a decade in a vicious fight over bond payments with Argentina, whose former president, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, called Mr. Singer a vulture lord and his firm a financial terrorist. In 2016, the country paid Elliot $2.4 billion, a 392% return on the original value of the bonds. 
Mr. Singer has given money to campaigns supporting same-sex marriage and is an influential Republican donor. He was a major critic of President Trump, or President Trump until after the election when he donated a million dollars to Mr. Trump's inaugural fund. So, like, these are the people you're casting lots with. Yeah. Right? Like, this is it. Like, you've got, you know, big, rich Republicans. Like, that's who we have turned to to save publishing again, you know? And it's... I think that there's, you know, we'll see what happens. I mean, on its face, you know, you get that amount, you know, $638 billion, whatever it is. Like, publishing needs that money. It's good that we have, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, it's good that Barnes & Noble has that money. Hopefully they can use it. But it's like, I just, instinctually, I just worry that this sort of trend of just relying on this means of keeping things afloat, it's going to, I mean, obviously the industry is already warped along those lines, but it's only going to continue. And I'm not sure that when we talk about like, maybe this is how I would put it. It's good that we want Barnes & Noble to... It's good that Barnes & Noble exists still. You know, it's good right. that it's it's saving itself. But if the goal is more than that, if the goal is for Barnes & Noble and independent bookstores and the whole ecosystem to exist a certain way, then decisions like this probably require a little scrutiny. And I think that's kind of where we're at now. It's not a good thing yet. It's not a bad thing yet. I guess it's probably more good than bad because the money's there. We're not going over the brink. But... It's just something to watch, I think. I guess yeah. is maybe how I would say. I, I'm mostly I'm reserving judgment, but I'm not ready to like throw confetti around for what? Barnes and Noble getting bought by the people I just described. Well, I hope they keep uh, their bar in the <laughs> in the Barnes and Noble in Edina. Do you remember when they cut? So, I'm tr- we talked about it once really early on in this show. I went to a reading mm-hmm. at the one in Edina, which, which is, is the one with the bar. Yeah, um, Edina is a pretty wealthy suburb of Minneapolis. And, yeah, the Barnes & Noble there, it's got, like, this very, like, they removed, funnily enough, they removed the literature section. <laughs> to, put, <laughs> to put the bar really, in. Really, they did. No, that, like, you can go. I they, forgot about they had that. To, they had to, like, scrap the, li- they literally, the literature section <laughs> is now gone and replaced with, like, a place you can get, like, a glass of sangria, you know. It's <laughs> um, it's really good. And everyone in Edina loves it. Yeah, um, not just surprised. As they all loved uh, Celeste Ng that evening, which... Um, is a perfect fit of book and audience. Where did they shelf her book, though? Yeah, yeah who knows? Um, <laughs> that day it was all over every table. But One of the anyway. things I will also say uh, that I'm a little bit concerned about, specifically having yeah. to do with James Daunt, who is um, yeah. chief executive of Waterstones, is now going to be CEO of Barnes & Noble, maybe in addition to, I think it's in addition to being um, chief executive of Waterstones, um, is that he, like, I've heard from my science fiction fantasy editor friends that mm-hmm. he is very famously anti-science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Oh, interesting. And so he has kind of taken upon himself to reduce the number of titles that any particular Waterston's store has. Um, so that, like, I don't, I don't know if the... American like Barnes and Noble shoppers will kind of push back against that. Um, But as somebody who works in science fiction and fantasy, that's a bummer, particularly because um, Barnes and Noble still does a really brisk business in science fiction and fantasy uh, mass market titles, which are the little like drugstore kind of guys. Um, And that's really one of the key places where a lot of that science fiction is being sold right now. Well, and so that's illustrative of what of the line we were trying to draw a few minutes ago. Right. Which is if a publisher 
whether, or excuse me, a bookseller based on any number of preferences decides to emphasize or de-emphasize a certain thing, that means that something will sell a little more or a little less, which mm-hmm. means a publisher will change its decisions about how to promote or se- or acquire those things, which means that you, the agent, are going to decide to you know, take on and sign projects of a certain kind in a slightly different way based on that call and response. And then it does end up trickling back to, okay, what's sellable right now? Like who can write what? And obviously that's many links in the chain. You know, that's obviously I don't think that science fiction fantasy is going to live or die based on this one guy's preference or not for it. You know what I mean? But it it makes it a little bit harder. It is the sort of thing that could end up weighing on it. And so it's worth kind of tracking how that stuff works and, and how more importantly than his moods about a given genre, how the company he now owns decides to, you know, sell and structure, you know, that particular section of his, of its stuff. So, so while we emphatically beg Barnes and Noble to not cancel, (laughs) Science fiction and fantasy. Let's talk about things that have <clears throat> indeed been canceled. Wow. Yeah. How was that as I, far I'm as a transition? I don't, talk, I don't do that anymore. You don't, I don't, t- <laughs> I don't talk about that. I don't talk about your transitions You don't anymore. talk about my transitions anymore. I let anymore. them happen. Um, okay. <clears throat> now, I, now apparently I talk about my transitions. So this is from BuzzFeed News. Um, I'm sure that you saw this if you are a fan of any kind of this show. Um, here we go. The writer who lost her book deal after calling out a D.C. Metro worker for eating on the train is suing the publisher for $13 million. So this author, if you've been on social media recently or been on any kind of like publishing or book-focused news sites, yeah. um, you'll have heard of Natasha Tynes. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, why, don't, why don't you tell the, the folks at home about her book. Okay, so Natasha Tynes, Jordanian-American. She is um, a writer. Her book was called, it was what, They Called Me Wyatt, I believe? They Called Me Wyatt. Yeah, and the book, from what I can tell, it was this novel about, um, like, a college student or someone gets murdered, and they, but they're, like, consciousness or their soul or whatever whatever have you um stays intact and it ends up inhabiting this american three-year-old and then that three-year-old because it can't talk decides instead to investigate its own murder yes um is what i based on the amazon copy here and it's very poor copy (laughs) let's we tried to parse it for all of you but it's kind of it's very it's just very uh and this is good copy 101, right? Like, it's very plot descriptive mm. as opposed to being, like, evocative in any Intention kind of way. Intention-driven. Yeah. yeah exactly. uh, oh, I like that phrase. You yeah. taught recently on copy, right? Like you did Yeah, like I, I literally <laughs> just gave a copywriting presentation for a publisher Man, wow. <laughs> on Wednesday. Um, anyway. Yeah. Um, but, so, Natasha Tynes became internet famous um, last month because she was on the DC train and she saw an employee of the train system, I guess one of the drivers of the train, saw this this person eating. Um, eating breakfast eating in breakfast the morning on the train. decided to um, tweet at the um, D.C. Transit Authority. With a picture with a picture, of this woman. With a, you know, it was like one of those things where um, it was very, you know, to use a certain parlance, it was very speak to your manager you know what I mean? And so it, it felt like this attempt to get this working class woman fired from her job just for eating breakfast at her train. And it sparked this whole discourse about how this woman probably doesn't have any time to eat breakfast. And, you know, she's someone who's working hard. And why are you using your... It's worth noting that this <clears throat> is a black woman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, why are you using your big, you know, fancy internet platform to attack you know, working class people who are just trying to eat their food, all that kind of stuff, it sort of exploded, you know, rightly so. She deserved yep. ire for, like, 
if you're going to get on as someone with a lot of followers and kind of a prominent, you know, media presence and use that following to, I don't know, attack employees of any, really any kind at their job, like probably you deserve some scorn. And that internet attention eventually warped into Rare Bird Books, which was the distributor of her book, crucially not her publisher, on this kind of a weird relationship in there. But um, her distributor decided that they would no longer be distributing this particular book because of, you know, they found her actions objectionable and decided that that was it. They didn't want to do it. And so that was it. That kind of tanked, you know, this... Tanked the book. It tanked and then the book. It, her publisher, who is, I think, like a subdivision yeah. or, you know, of of Rare Bird, which is California Cold Blood, mm-hmm. um, basically is only going, they're scrapping print copies of this book and they're only going to release it through the Kindle, like Kindle self-publishing program for Amazon. Yeah. Um, so essentially they're not cutting her totally off, but all of the distribution options are not available to her anymore. Well, so um, that, so that is interesting and critical and worth unpacking yes. right there because basically what they've decided to do is not cancel the book. That's the first thing. The like, publisher has <clears throat> decided not to cancel like, the book. The correct. book still exists. The book is still under contract, but they're doing it in such a way where it's not going to get distributed anywhere. Mm-hmm. And so the way what they've basically have decided to do is release it like only through Kindle, and they're going to basically just do it until they can recoup their costs, you know, to print it or or to whatever they kind of put in to produce the book. They're going to kind of get that back, and then they're going to be done. And so. It's not a quick and clean cancellation. It's more just like suffocating it to death. You, you know what I mean? Really, though, like it's. Um, and so Natasha <clears throat> Tynes is suing Rare Bird Books. Importantly, not her publisher, but kind of the the the, the distributor for yeah. thirteen million dollars for defamation. Um, for defamation other and for emotional distress, you know, she and for. Illegally canceling a contract, yeah. All this kind of stuff. It sort of and it sort of rolls into this idea, like uh, Tynes, you know, spent, you know, kind of the aftermath of this, getting a lot of death threats and harassment and all this sorts of stuff. I guess she ended up in the hospital for various anxiety related things. Like it was an ordeal, you know what I mean? Like this person suffered for this in in a lot of ways, and it raises, I think, a lot of questions because this, you know, you hear all sorts of talk now about things like quote unquote cancel culture and you know like the, the internet mob and all these all this stuff that publishers more and more and we've talked about this a bunch you know are now forced to respond to and have a response ready for and so often Laura you and I have been on the side and I I think that probably we in a structural way we're on the same side as we always are with regard to you know if something like this happens it's you know like deplatforming people who you know, screw up like this is a good, you know, it's often an effective way of, you know, it's it's the right choice for the publisher a lot of the time. But yeah. deplatforming racist, misogynist, et cetera, is on the whole which a good is, thing. Which is not necessarily what we're calling tines here, right? Like it's, right. it's but the, and that's kind of where I want to go with this is this is a slightly different situation. And I think it raises, for me anyway, my hackles got up a little bit because it feels like it's there are ways in which the processes I'm seeing it unfold here could be pushed in ways I don't necessarily love. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, like I guess maybe we're sort of like, what do you think here? Like you're, we kind of talked about this. You're good with 
the book being canceled. But then the book isn't actually getting canceled, right? Yeah. So I I have a lot of complicated feelings about this particular instance. Um, So it is so we we've talked about it a lot on this podcast before, but. I I work in young adult literature and there have been a lot of moments in specifically with YA in the last couple of years where projects have been flagged projects themselves, not necessarily the authors, but the, the projects themselves have been flagged as problematic in ways that can't easily be fixed. Yeah. And there's kind of, um, a fork in the road as to what has happened with these projects. Um, Unfortunately, I have seen a trend where problematic books by marginalized authors, particularly authors of color, have been canceled completely and publishers have very much distanced distanced themselves from the author. Mm-hmm. Um, in other places, the book has just been postponed and then revised or it's been published regardless or if it has been canceled, it's been canceled without like a really strong, um, def- like defamatory style statement. So yeah. like compare uh, the rare bird again, the distributor, not technically the publisher of Tynes said that um, Natasha Tynes and uh, did something truly horrible today in tweeting a picture of a metro worker eating her breakfast on the train this morning and drawing attention to her employer. Black women face a constant barrage of this kind of inappropriate behavior directed towards them and a constant policing of their bodies. We think this is unacceptable and have no desire to be involved with anyone who thinks it, who thinks it's acceptable to jeopardize a person's safety and employment in this way. So like that is a very, very strong statement. And mm-hmm. while I agree <laughs> typically with what they're saying, I think that I was trying to think of what would happen if like a middle-aged white woman had tweeted this. And I and I don't know if there would have been this strong of a backlash or this strong of a statement from this this company. Well it just feels it the statement the statement struck me as as really strong too, and again, like it's correct, but I wonder if, you know, just saying, you know, we're not, you know, we're aware of what happened. We're not working with this person anymore. Like that does the same thing. It's all, you almost get the sense, especially with how the internet works and how, you know, people get really worked up. Like it does the same thing, but it doesn't put a woman of color in danger. Yeah. (laughs) Like there is a, there is a certain amount of that going on here in a way that I think, um, I don't necessarily, and this is going to kind of be the distillation of my point is, I think that structurally the correct thing happened here. I think that Tyne's book should have been canceled. Though I honestly, actually, I wish it had been canceled. This feels actually way less fair than that. You know what I mean? Because it's not like she has it to go resell or try to do something else with mm-hmm. it, right? They, they're just, they're keeping it and killing it. You know what yeah. I mean? Like there's, it's just kind of dead in the water. There's nothing to really be, do about it. But like basically my point here is that I just see this kind of stuff and I see and I think the reason this one stands out to me is because you have a you know a publisher and I guess here a distributor really taking the chance to like air a values judgment mm-hmm. in a way that in and, and again like everything they're saying here is correct like it is true that you know black women face a constant barrage of this kind of like everything they've said here is true and it's good enough reason to cancel but there's something in the way that they got on here and it's like oh it's truly horrible like 
you know, this woman ended up getting death threats, you know? And, like, it's, I don't know. Like, I feel like there's a business decision, and then there's, like, participating in the pile trying on. to, like, yeah. And, and that felt like it kind of crossed the line a little bit for me, even if I think, like, the right choice was made. And it just kind of gets at this idea that I don't, like, I don't necessarily trust publishers to be the arbiters of who, you know, especially after the fact, like, who's you know, internet behavior is good and whose isn't. I'm really not. Like, I I haven't seen any evidence, you know, in however many years, you know, we've been watching kind of this Twitter era of book publishing. Um, I don't believe that publishers are really that good at making these judgments independent of just paying attention to noise, if that makes sense. So compare this statement that was about an Iranian-American woman Um, Compare that statement to what happened also this week about Linda Fairstein. Sure. Um, So this author, you might recognize her name as, you know, the author of 14, like, crime or mystery novels. But also um, this woman was the chief of the Manhattan District Attorney's Sex Crime Unit. And she was the one or one of the people that strongly encouraged prosecuting the Central Park Five. Yeah. Who have, of course, famously been acquitted completely. Um, And this this case has been very, very like a political hot button issue. Right. And so Dutton is very quietly terminating all 14 of these books. They are not submitting a comment. They're not doing anything. And while um, Linda Fairstein has, like, had a lot of backlash so far that, you know, she has resigned from positions, you know, her position on the board of trustees for Vassar College and she and and another nonprofit and she had, like, the Mystery Writers of America pull away their, their, like, honors, that is not the same thing. Like, that is a professional backlash. Like, that is professional backlash. That is not um, sicking people after an individual author. Well, so there's, yeah. There's, there's, I feel like there's a really, really important distinction here. And I feel like a lot of it is incredibly racially motivated. There is. But there's also something interesting in this Fairstein thing that kind of speaks to what I'm, what I'm trying to say about, like, um, how I just don't really trust publishers to do the right thing as opposed to just listening to who's mad on the internet. Mm-hmm. Like, because the way this cycle always goes, right, is just to, like, take a step back on a conceptual level. Like, none of this, none of these actions, I guess the Tynes thing happened after the book contract, but none of these actions ever prevent publishers from signing people up in the first place, right? They yeah. don't have, they don't actually feel any moral responsibility to vet people beforehand, what happens is they become, quote unquote, aware of things when the internet makes enough noise. When they get enough bad PR, that's the motivating factor, right? right. Like, it's not as though, like, for, in- for instance, Linda Fairstein, the, the Central Park Five thing was, what, 1989, Well, right? it happened yeah, in 1989, and, but all but the convictions a- were overturned in 2002. Okay, so but, it's been over 15 years since everything was proved to be just a Okay, and her, you know, you know, this is a books podcast, not a political podcast, but like <laughs> we know who Linda Fairstein was. You know what I mean? Like she's someone who, you know, you see these quotes, you know, she delighted in the prosecution of these kids. She was proud of the way those kids were interrogated. Like she's 
We know who she is. We've known who she's been for 15 years. And with all that's happened, the only thing that's changed, and none of this mattered to Dutton until right now, the only thing that's changed is that she there was a documentary or, a, excuse me, a drama that came out, yeah. right? And it was called um, When They See Us. Yeah, When They See It was this, yeah. It was just kind of a new thing about the case. And like it painted Ferristine in a bad light. And suddenly everyone was thinking about her again. And so Dutton's like, oh, well, we better cancel based on. But again, based on what? What are they in 2019? What is different? What, what is a publisher canceling, you know, Linda Ferstein's books over? Not the fact that she is, you know, she was delighting in the same prosecution of, you know, these kids that the same kids that Trump put a full page ad in the New York Times to, you know, ask for the death penalty for. Not that. She's not, you know, they don't they didn't care about that. They didn't care about that and they don't care about it now. What they care about is people being mad at them on the internet. Mm. They're mad about bad PR. That's all it is. Like, it's, and that's what gets me, that's what scares me a little bit about this stuff. And I don't want to be, like, there's a certain type of, like, internet pedant mm-hmm. that is always like, well, oh, the, the internet mob, you know, it's all this kind of stuff. My, you know, they're, we, they can't be trusted and people are just getting canceled for all these things and cancel culture is excessive. I don't think any of that is true. The, the issue I have, the thing that scares me is I don't trust publishers' value systems quite enough to yeah. listen and sift through what's happening. Because, like, for instance, you know, you see all the time people get, like, if the problem is noise, right? If the problem is, like, oh, no, our author is being attacked on the Internet by, you know, people who are saying he or she is a very bad person. Right. That, you know, the people who are doing that, sometimes those people are Nazis, Sometimes those people are, you know, an organized, sometimes it's Gamergate. Sometimes it's, you know, any of these other big, you know, kind of coordinated mass far right movements that are just kind of designed to chase people off the Internet or, or, or worse, you know. And I look at what I have seen from publishers, from agencies as, you know, they will look at, you know, a situation. say, Oh, no, this, you know, the, there's a bunch of noise surrounding this thing. And I don't I haven't seen anything that makes me feel confident that a publisher of any kind is able to kind of look at that and say, I can understand what's good faith criticism that we need to act on and what's and I and we need to get there because it's it's it, gonna hurt a lot of people who are not in a position to really withstand that gale force. Well and it and it is important though, I think, to and I wanna reiterate this again because I'm trying not to be Mr oh, the internet is out of control because that is not what I believe is happening. I think that these moments of outrage when people get mad at someone, like I said, I think Tyne's book should be canceled. It's the it's the people doing the value judgments. You know, it's the people who now more and more have morality clauses in their contracts that say, well, as long as you're, you know, if we think that you are messing up on the internet, we can cancel your book. I don't like that. And as an agent, I shouldn't like that, right? Because that sounds like the kind of thing that, gets my client's book canceled for no reason. You, you know what I mean? Right? And right. It's, it just makes me... So, like, you know, I'm going to say it again because this is the sort of thing that's going to drive people nuts. My problem is not with the internet mob. The internet mob, very usually, especially in the cases we're talking about, is correct. My problem is with the, the arbiter of the judgment. Yeah. And I just haven't seen enough. Like, we've seen it with, like, the Milo case, right? Like, we see it anytime. The thing that gets the book canceled is not a publisher's good judgment about the character of their authors. It's how loud are the people asking for it. 
And, and that's that noise can come from people you don't shouldn't be listening to. And, and that's what I'm worried about. In a lot about. of ways, um, the that publisher judgment is is even even if it's the right choice, it's particularly particularly reprehensible because it's an issue of scale. Yeah. So in um, a statement that Rare Birds Rare Bird Books made about canceling the project mm-hmm. or canceling their distribution of the project. They stated that this book, who is published, you know, by a company, I looked them up, California Cold Blood. They have two people working for them. Say, there's the owner. Matter, yeah. There's the owner and then there's one person yeah. who does marketing and sales. Yeah. And that's that's two people. And it is a relatively small imprint. And they said that this book, when they decided to cancel it, had fewer than 50 pre-orders. And so then it becomes kind of an idea of, well, a book that was going to make such a small splash anyhow and not be a really big, um, not affect your bottom line in any particular way as a distributor. You know, you're not going to make yeah. any any money off of, yeah. you know, a book that might sell a thousand copies. Um, what does it mean to make that a huge visible part of of your your communication as a company and your branding? Yeah. No, I mean, I think that, and it just, it feels so, even when they get it right, it feels like publishers often get it right for the wrong reasons. Yeah. You know, like they're doing it because they see an easy chance to kind of garner like woke points. <laughs> you know you, you know what though? Like, I, I mean it though. Like, yeah, I know. It's, I know who these presses publish. I know that when I see a tweet, you know, celebrating whatever, you know, whether it's Black History Month or whether it's, you know, Pride or whatever it is that given month on the calendar, you know, from a publisher talking about, like, I know which people of questionable political repute they have on their, you know, their trade nonfiction list. Like, it's, it just doesn't land for me. Like, I don't trust the value judgments from these places as much as I think that I should. You know what we never see? What? Is that, you know, and this I think is really indicative. Is you very, or I guess pro- never is probably too strong. You should never say never on a podcast because then someone somebody's will find gonna write it. in. <laughs> <laughs> but you very rarely, I think, see a publisher do something like where they'll like cancel a book or they'll make a values, you know, judgment like this privately and without you knowing about it beforehand and without there being like it's not as though you know, like if someone screws up mm-hmm. in a way that would theoretically get their book canceled. You never see that happen before the internet arrives to yell about it. Like, it's never a question of the publisher saying, hey, you know, just so you guys know, maybe you haven't heard about this, this thing happened, and we decided we didn't want to proceed with it. Right. Like, no, 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 no. They Because that isn't actually the motivating factor. The motivating factor is, are enough people going to give us bad publicity for it? And... That's and that's why this stuff only happens after you know a day or an afternoon of everybody being furious about it, and in this case, and in most of these cases, rightly furious about it. Like I, I think that that's one of the really good things about the internet. Actually, is it's very like democratizing in that. Well, when you dig when, backwards, yeah. when you dig backwards, the reason that a lot of these publishers are signing problematic authors or problematic books is because they don't have anybody who knows any better on their staff. You know, it's it's just all like upper middle class and upper class white people. Now yeah. that's a, that's a yeah. gross overgeneralization, but yeah. like that's a really big problem yeah. is it's really hard to have people look at a manuscript and say this is this is problematic if they have to if if nobody on staff has that yeah. lived experience. Yeah. 
And so it requires a lot of self-awareness and education and things that are that are very difficult for people. And we should absolutely expect people to um, to, to educate themselves and to stand up for um, projects that are valuable and reject projects that are inherently harmful or problematic. But when you get back to it, I think that it's not just a matter of the Twitter mob holding publishers responsible to do the right things for shouldn't the right reasons. shouldn't be the reasons. Twitter mob's job. No, it shouldn't be the Twitter mob's job yeah. because a lot of, I mean, this the Natasha Tynes case is something different because I it's the, the manuscript is very, very different from that tweet. But kind of just in general, in general, all of this could be solved by like if the industry and their hiring practices were less exclusionary and less racist. Well, sure. I mean, I think that would help in the situations where, like, the manuscript itself is what the issue is. Like, this is a situation where, like, you know, you could hire whoever you want. None of that is going to stop Natasha Tynes from tweeting about the subway (laughs) (laughs) work. That's Uh, true. You know, but it's like, for me, you know, one thing that's kind of sitting weird to me about some of the discourse I saw around it today is, and this is where I think, you know, the point I'm trying to make does get taken too far by some usual bad actors where it's like, well, look what's happened. This woman is getting, you know, now I hope everyone's happy with themselves. This woman is now, you know, being harassed. She's getting all this stuff. And there's like no mention of the fact that probably so is the person she tried to get fired in the first place. You know what I mean? Like there's, and no one had that sentiment, you know, or that that same person who was decrying the internet mob had none of those shared feelings for the person who had been, like, photographed and put and had their employer tagged in. Like, I don't know. It's, it's the sort of conversation, whether it's about books or anything else, you see it a lot. Like, this is the sort of thing that, like, media Twitter will spend days and days and days on because they find it like insular and fascinating in a way that gets really irritating but so to kind of tie a bow on this we're both coming down on this book should absolutely be canceled and not like put onto the kdp select program and like to limp along no that sucks i think that's that's unfair for everyone like uh, (laughs) just cancel the book but how how would you have gone if you were rare bird books or the the actual publisher how would you go about canceling this project we're aware of what happened her behavior very clearly doesn't align with our value judgment. You know, we even you could even put in a line about, you know, you know, targeting, you know, the vulnerability of black women, you know, and especially of working class, you know, working. Those, you, could, you could put in something like that. We've decided to respectfully part ways. That's it. Like and then that would be, you know, we wish her the best, all that kind of, you know, you could do any sort of number of professional things. But I would also not do this thing where. They don't actually cancel the contract. Like, I think that if you're going to be bold enough to say, we don't want to publish your book, which is really what they're saying, like, then you've got to just, you've got to cut it. Like, you can't, I don't think it's fair to, on a, to just like let it wither on the vine like this. So, okay, so here's, here's the thing about that. And this is me being very cynical. Please. Um, I, I mean, I don't have any numbers or any information except for, a statement by um, her her publisher that talked about how they are still like they're going to stop doing print books even though sales have gone through the roof since this happened, 
And so maybe, Eric, maybe the reason they didn't pu- they didn't totally cancel this contract is because this book actually isn't going to limp along anymore. Yeah. Maybe it's because they wanted to find a way to distance themselves from the author, but they wanted to still profit off of it. Yeah. Well, they want to at least cover their costs, yeah. which they've said. You know, they want to, it's like, they don't, yeah, I don't know. It, it feels, it's also very strange because like in most contracts, like if you're, if you've got reasonable costs to terminate like this, yeah, you would ask for the money back from the author. I, though I guess that doesn't necessarily cover production costs and stuff, but like. Or legal, yeah. But like, it feels like they're trying to have it, like it just feels mealy mouth to me. It feels mealy mouth and it feels like it's trying to like be part of yeah. the outrage and the like, I just I don't I don't love that. And California Cold Blood has since stated that they are going to donate the proceeds from the book to a Black Lives Matter organization. Fine. That's great. It is great. Um, it is. So I don't know. I just I think there are things to watch here. I think that yeah. as a pattern, I don't necessarily basically don't let publishers get away with and this is a truth across a number of issues we talk about. Don't let publishers get away with calling themselves like progressive and woke just because they're able to kind of listen to crowdsourced opinions. Like, they've got to do a little bit better than that, and the fact that they won't is going to end up hurting people. Thank you so much for joining us on this uh, cancel-y-focused episode (laughs) of Print Run. Remember to send us your queries, your first pages, your suggestions, and your questions to us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com, and we will see you for a regular episode next week. Thanks. Thanks.